Welcome to Liz Collin Reports. On the podcast, a California nurse turned courageous whistleblower telling the truth about COVID. Gail McRae is my guest. She's here to talk about hospital corruption from protocols to vaccine side effects and her new fight in court. Gail, thank you so much for being my guest. Appreciate you being on. Thanks for having me. I'm always happy to try and uh, inspire courage uh, in the world around us. That seems to be the trend I've seen uh, the last two, three years now is, gosh, it's been a lot of practitioners with very little courage. I think you're doing just that, uh, inspiring courage, but by sharing your story. And and just uh, first of all, let's start with your background as a nurse. Uh, I know this was work you were very passionate about. When did you become a nurse? And and explain uh, for, for our listeners, for our viewers, where you worked. Yeah, so uh, I uh, was born and raised in California. Uh, I went to nursing school and graduated in 2011. Uh, From there, I went directly into hospital-based nursing. I worked in ICU for several years, and then I specialized most of my career in telemetry, which is cardiac, heart-related abnormalities, heart attacks and strokes and such. My passion was always babies. So I ended up moving to Africa in 2015 and working in a rural district teaching hospital there for a year, delivering babies and learning how to practice the art of midwifery. And so when I returned from that, I had a couple of my own kids. And then uh, when my youngest daughter was two and a half, I started graduate school to uh, become a nurse practitioner as a certified nurse midwife. And uh, women's health uh, was the specialty. So, uh, but throughout that time, I had always spent my career in the hospital. Um, and most of that was in telemetry and, and, and cardiac floors. So specifically, you are spending some time at uh, the Kaiser Permanente Hospital around the Bay Area. Is that right? Yeah. So I worked for Kaiser Santa Rosa starting in 2015, and then they fired me in October of 2021 for refusing um, to fill out a religious exemption and or take the COVID shots. So it, yeah, we'll we'll get get to that uh, in a bit. I I wanted to to talk about then when the pandemic settles in, uh, in the spring of 2020, Gail. What are you noticing at at the hospital uh, where you work at the t- at the time? Yeah, it was kind of surprising to me right off the bat. Uh, there was a lot I didn't have. I didn't really watch TV at home, and so when I go to the hospital and I was in my patients' rooms. I would see the the TV and I would see the news and I was right away very surprised by what I was seeing uh, because in, let's see, March of 2020, when they decided to uh, lock down the communities in preparation, throughout that whole next several months, uh, I witnessed the, the media saying that our hospitals were full of patients and they were never full of patients. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, from the onset of COVID, Uh, For the whole first year of this pandemic, uh, not only was our hospital under uh, capacity, I was getting canceled. So the position I worked uh, was per diem. So uh, I could choose to schedule myself when I wanted to, and I could accept cancellation anytime the hospital didn't have enough patients to staff me. And since I was in graduate school, I went ahead and took those cuts. (laughs) 
And, um, but I, and so that went through the whole first winter of 2020 and 2021. Um, we had a standard winter. So this is how it works in the hospital. You know, the hospitals are empty during the summer months and then they fill up uh, usually once or twice in the winter. That's normal. And that's what happened in the winter of 2020 and 2021. We filled up twice. It was nothing outside the normal. Hmm. And let's talk um, treatment when it comes to COVID patients specifically. When, when they do come to the hospital, there, of course, was this very specific protocol you were following. Uh, what was it uh, that, that came to, you know, serious COVID patients and, and, and what you were seeing happen uh, bo- bothered you, it's fair to say, Gail? Yeah. So the, the first thing that bothered me was the media coverage. The second thing that bothered me was the protocols. Uh, right off the bat with the... Um, shutdowns of everything. They stopped allowing patient family members to the bedside. Um, the first time I had to speak with a family member and tell them that they couldn't come to the bedside of their terrified, very sick loved one, that was probably one of the most terrible moments of my life. I felt like I was violating myself, my ethics, my oath, and my patience. Uh, I, I just can't, couldn't stop imagining, you know, if, if that was me in that position, I, I felt like a horrible person. I went home then feeling horrible. Uh, and then it was the remdesivir and it was the same thing with the remdesivir that, that, you know, I hear it all around me nowadays. And I heard it from day one, we would sit at the nurse's station and we would talk about, well, why are we giving patients an antiviral when they're a week past symptom onset, you know, why are we giving them this antiviral medication that's experimental and we're seeing no improvement. And as a matter of fact, we're seeing patients going to multi-organ failures. Uh, and, and I did bring that up. We spoke about it at the nurse's station. We did bring it up to our colleagues and it was always the same response. This is protocol. This is all we have. There's nothing else we can give. Uh, and that was just terrible. It was terrible. And I know that that's helped uh, you bring this story forward as well, because this is the protocol that still remains uh, in place to this day at, at most hospitals uh, across the country. This is still protocol, Gail. It is, and it's extraordinary, especially uh, now that we're seeing the the research come out on it. I know that some of the research, there's there's a lot of holes in a lot of the research. I find a lot of incentivization and in a lot of the research, it can't be trusted, but there is research that is coming forward showing the high morbidity and mortality rates with the use of remdesivir. And I've seen major health organizations, the WHO specifically, it was, you know, they put out a statement that they don't recommend it being used, and yet we're still using it um, on our protocols. I don't understand. And when do you discover this monetary connection to all of this, uh, Gail, you know, th- these connections uh, to the protocols, these kickbacks um, hospitals uh, are receiving? I didn't really find out too much about that until uh, probably the summer of 2021 when I was getting closer to throwing the towel in on my medical field work that I'd spent my whole life doing. We have a hard time imagining terrible things are happening. And we really do go to lengths to trust these three-letter agencies that, you know, are setting protocols like the CDC and the WHO and the AMA. Uh, it re- 
that that's really what it comes down to, I think, is that there are so many practitioners that are genuinely good people and they just can't imagine that these terrible things are happening. I think it's difficult for the public to, to grasp that as well. You want to think that your best interest uh, as a patient is really at heart. But you said something uh, to me that, that struck me right away before we had this this conversation, and, and that was this, that I was participating in medical murder. Uh, that That's what you told me, but you, you truly believe that. I absolutely do. Uh, and, and again, I think that it comes from the combination. It's the remdesivir. It's the isolation of the patients. Um, it's weeks on end with, you know, no f- access to food and water. I'm not sure how much of that is still going on because since I was fired, um, I haven't put another foot back into the medical field and I don't plan to. But um, all of these protocols, the fear mongering, the isolation, the toxic medications. I walked away feeling like I had participated in medical murder. And and in addition to that, I and I'm still I'm still processing it. In addition to that, what I saw with the injections really just drove it home. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I, I wanted to talk more about that um, because it is so um, eye-opening to, to hear your story when it comes to the injection. And you make a point to not call it a, a vaccine, uh, uh, of course, but ex- explain why that is. Yeah, so while well, I made it, I, I talked you through the, the timeline of how the hospitals were empty the first year of COVID. Well, starting in March of 2021, that was uh, right around the time when they provided those injections to our community. The healthcare workers all got them first. And then starting in, in late February, early March, my community got access to the gene therapy injections. And uh, within two weeks of the onset of the vaccination of our community with these experimental shots, uh, my hospital uh, filled to three times higher hospital admissions than they've ever had since the hospital opened their, their doors. And that was reported me to me by the administrators and management at my hospital. Uh, I went to work one day in June and my one of my direct managers looked at me and he said that he'd been evaluating the records and he had seen that we had had three times higher admissions. And that was after I had already experienced uh, three and a half months of our staffing department calling me three times a day, every day to come to work. So, and then when I did go, there were some other interesting thing that things that happened. Uh, so I worked as a nurse for about 10 years and I noticed um, in about June of 2021, I worked a double. It was right around that same time my manager approached me and told me that. And uh, I worked on two different units during that 16 hours uh, because they were so desperate for nurses. And uh, I, I was working at a, as a patient cor- uh, care coordinator on both units that I worked on. And what that means is that I got report on every patient on both units. So I got report on probably 55 or 60 patients in those 16 hours. And every single one of those patients that was admitted into the hospital during that time was there for a heart attack, a stroke, um, a weird peripheral clotting disorder, um, Four of those patients had rapid onset Guillain-Barre. Two of them I talked to directly said that it happened directly in correlation with the, with their job. The other two I didn't get a chance to ask. But uh, it became extraordinarily clear to me that those were um, side effects from, from these injections. And in addition to that, 
during that two week period in June, um, when I was working, I noticed a massive in increase in code blues. Do you know what that is? Yeah, explain explain that. So code, this is something that you normally don't hear uh, in, in a hospital. Correct. So a code blue, you know that that we call code blues on the over head calm in the hospital, and it happens usually on average about once a shift for the first nine years I was in the field. And then starting uh, in about March, I noticed an uptick in code blues. And the interesting thing about this is that in our hospital, uh, we were Kaiser Permanente is a fully inclusive medical care facility. So they do labs, medications. Um, um, it's a hospital. They have their clinics. They have an urgent care clinic. And oddly enough, the uh, vaccination, the COVID vaccination clinic was taking place on the lower level of the main hospital. So they would call code blues in the overhead comm throughout the whole hospital. And nine out of 10 times, those code blues were to, to the lower level down to the uh, clinic where they were injecting people. And two of, my, two of my colleagues did in fact go into anaphylaxis in addition after receiving their, their shots. So not only did I hear it through the overhead comms, but I also had colleagues who I knew personally who went into anaphylaxis. But from what I understand, Gail, you're seeing this play out before your eyes and in your hospital, but you're told uh, that, that you're not allowed to report this. Yeah, that's correct. And it wasn't just me that was told that. So it was kind of just understood that we weren't allowed to report anything. Nobody talked about reporting it. And if we did, we were, you know, we would get a head shake and they would say, no, you know, we can't prove that this is from the injections. It was very hush hush. But in addition to that, one of my colleagues, uh, she won't unfortunately come forward, but um, she did report to me. She was the main um, um, COVID injection clinic nurse. So she went to work nine to five administering these shots. And uh, she was, she witnessed, I believe she said between three and 10 uh, episodes of anaphylaxis per shot, uh, per shift at the beginning when she was administering them. And she did directly ask her manager about reporting those events. And her manager directly told her that if she reported a single adverse event, she would be fired. So and there were other cases like that that were similar. Um, it also happened with the reporting of um, fully vaccinated patients and staff who uh, came in with COVID. Uh, we were not allowed to report those cases. So we had uh, charting system glitches where the charts would only allow us to insert that the patients were unvaccinated or, or that their vaccination status was unknown. That took place for a few months. I don't think it's still going on. But when they were when the media was reporting that all of the patients who were admitted to the hospital were unvaccinated, that was never true. I was working on those COVID floors, taking care of those patients. It was it that came down to the charting system that we were using to tally up that evidence and how it it excluded intentionally excluded fully vaccinated uh, status in the charting systems. 
Well, and you've talked about that before too. The the definition uh, on on several things uh, had had been changed. Yeah, so that's part of it too. Is that they wouldn't record, you know, oh, if the if they hadn't received their vaccine, you know, more than two weeks ago, we couldn't count this as a vac, you know, as a as a potential COVID case because the vaccine still hadn't taken effect yet. So they manipulated it in multiple ways. And we now know that the CDC has only recently acknowledged uh, some of these side effects, you know, years later. Um, so, you, but you were seeing this uh, early on, and ultimately, you ended up being fired uh, due to the federal mandate um, that you had to had to get the shot. Just just talk about what your life was like uh, after that. Right out the gate, uh, we were noticing those those extreme side effects from those shots. It. It was really unprecedented. The last thing I'll say about that is that, you know, those were summer months. That was March to June. And, you know, it. I looked around me at my colleagues and, and, and I saw them just, you know, the cognitive dissonance. Just I would say, like, you know, aren't, aren't you guys seeing the same thing that I'm seeing, you know? And they would say it privately. We had little group meetings where there was a support group that I attended. There was about 120 community members that were part of that group. And we would talk about it there, but it was so locked down in the hospital. You know, the staff were just afraid of losing their jobs. Really, I think that's what it came down to, their mortgages, their children, their, you know, their livelihoods. So it was really terrible. But luckily for me, um, I had uh, my husband, you know, he was a civil engineer. We had a decent income and I wasn't extremely reliant on my paycheck. And so I do definitely uh, have to admit, you know, it played a role in my ability to exercise courage. I'd also had, you know, a much more diverse background than a lot of people as far as living in a third world country like Africa for a year. You know, it teaches you a few things about courage and, you know, when it's worth it to stand up and say something. Uh, and so that definitely paid, played a big role. But, uh, yeah, I was fired for refusing even to take the um, the religious exemption route. Uh, I submitted legal documents to my employer and they put me on leave and then fired me five days later. So I'm, I'm not going to give and up. And I know though. you're. you're- yeah, well, and I, and I want to talk about what you're doing now. Uh, your courage certainly continues uh, with Stand Firm Now. Uh, the website is standfirmnow.org. But it, it ex- explain the mission here. Yeah, so, well, I've been involved in multiple lawsuits since I left the medical field. I kind of, Well, when it happened, I thought, gosh, how is this happening? How can they fire me for refusing an experimental use authorization? Because we're protected at state, federal, and international levels with statutes and laws over the mandate of an experimental use authorization. And uh, what, I, what I discovered was, wow, you know, there's a lot of contracts that I've signed that have you know, where I've given up my, my constitutional rights and I've, you know, I, I've opted in to these things. And so we find ourselves going to court and having no leg to stand on because of different, you know, things that we've done in the past to kind of set us up to not be able to exercise our constitutional rights. 
And so this project, standfirmnow.org, we've created a legal affidavit in order to set precedence. We have an attorney. He is going to use a legal tactic called a negative averment to assert evidence into the courts. And what we're trying to do is basically compile so much expert witness testimony, experts, that's doctors, nurses, scientists, people with um scientific knowledge background and understanding, not necessarily that have had experiences because it's really more about your standing as an expert and having that background and education to be able to state to state that the things in the in the document are true and correct. It's a really straightforward document. It's on the website. You can go and look at it. Uh, I think most people would feel comfortable signing it. Uh, it's backed up by over 320 exhibits, which are also on the website. So we've kind of tried to do everything for people to make this easy because we know that everyone is busy. I think it really, what it comes down to is, you know, who's got the courage to come forward and do it because it's asked, you know, it's asking people to put their name on a legal document and, uh, you know, that's really what it comes down to for me at the end of the day is like, well, you know, I'm passing this world on to my children. And that's why I'm doing this is because my children are coming into this world after me. And if I don't show them what it looks like to exercise courage, they might end up making bad choices for themselves. I know you get a lot of these questions uh, now as a as an expert uh, in all of this, but if someone died of COVID uh, in a hospital uh, during all of this um, and they have questions, what do you recommend? Uh, what what should they do? That's a great question because, you know, de- COVID definitely, it's not harmless. Uh, it causes massive inflammation. And I think as a matter of fact, that that's the number one reason why we had so many COVID deaths. It was a combination of the administration of remdesivir, the, the, um, the isolation in the hospitals and not addressing the massive inflammatory process that occurs when you get COVID. Uh, So that's the first thing that I think people really need to understand. You need to address the inflammation. Um, High dose steroids or, you know, alternatives to that would be like NAC and glutathione. Those also really help to address inflammation. Um, Turmeric and curcumin, those help address the coagulopathies associated with with, uh, COVID as well as the inflammation. Uh, Melatonin is a great tool. They found it competes with the binding site of uh, of the spike protein. And then of course, uh, zinc, vitamin D and C. Uh, I, at home, I'll take quercetin. It, that's a natural antiviral. Uh, so I keep all of those things in my cupboard. And, and if people have questions about something that perhaps lo- happened to their loved one, you really do have to start though with the, the medical records, Gail. Absolutely. And there's several websites for this too. The FLCCC has great resources for people who are, have gotten COVID. They have doctors who can um, write prescriptions. Uh, there's also the former feds group. Uh, they are a mass uh, group of victims of medical murder. Uh, people like myself, I mean, I'm the practitioner, but the victims, the family members who watched all this, these things, terrible things happen to their family members, uh, there are places to go to get resources, and I definitely recommend that people start coming together and talking to each other and taking action to, you know, try to bring some awareness and accountability. What has it been like for you to, you know, to take this big step forward and, and speak up? 
That's a great question. And I love answering it because, you know, a lot of people come to me and they're like, oh, I'm so sorry that you lost all these things. And, you know, to be honest, I feel that I've gained far more than I've lost because even though I'm not getting that great paycheck, uh, I am doing what I think is feel is right in my heart and my soul. And when I stand up for my own self and my integrity and the rights of myself and my children and the people around me, uh, it's really, it's really kind of communicated to me, well, what is the purpose of life? Am I here to make a paycheck or to make ends meet? Or am I here to, you know, stand up for myself and engage, you know, with love? I mean, ultimately, for me, really, this all comes down to making decisions out of a place of extraordinary love and compassion for the world around me. And that's what this has given me the opportunity to do. So I'm actually, I'm honestly very grateful to be out of the hospital and to be here advocating for um, things that I find to be, you know, of justice and moral grounds. Yeah. Acting in ethics and, and morals, something we don't see uh, much of, it seems like these days, Gail. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for, for all the time you, you spent uh, talking with me and, and just for, for telling the truth and, and being my guest today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Again, Gail McRae. And that will do it for this episode of Liz Collin Reports. We'll see you next time.